take the question, how long have humans been around for? There's your question. And that's, this was my experience. And I know the experience of a lot of other folks is, oh, wait, like science is weighing in. My faith tradition, I think, is weighing in on this. And they don't agree. And it sure looks like I can't have both, right? That seems like being intellectually dishonest to say, you know, humans are hundred some thousand years old and we're 6,000 years old. Like that, that seems dishonest. Well, welcome back to Open to Truth, a podcast all about exploring big ideas and discovering truth together, where our goal is to help you think critically, clearly, and freely about the things that matter most. My name's Clint. Hey, I'm Tony. Welcome back. We've got a special treat for you today. We're interviewing Dr. Joseph Vukov. He just goes by Joe here while we talk to him, and he's the assistant professor of philosophy at, guess it, Loyola University, Chicago, my recent alma mater. And we got actually connected... Uh, just by chance, really, uh, his publisher at Erdman's reached out to do an interview. And I'm like, hey, I know Joe. This will be great. Um, so he recently wrote this book called Navigating Faith and Science. Uh, and I had the pleasure of reading it over the past couple weeks. I learned a lot. It challenged some of my assumptions about how to uh, relate these two things or religion and science, the life of faith. Um, a lot of questions that I really struggled with back in the early 2010s. Um, and felt like I had a decent answer on it, but after reading this, uh, I, it really helped me um, put some things into perspective and learn some new things to add to my toolkit for explaining it. Uh, so I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Again, we'd love for you to interact, comment, write in to the show, uh, Open to Truth um, at podcast.gmail.com or mailbag at opentotruth.com, either of those. Uh, and we'd love to hear from you. So I bring you Dr. Joe Vukov. Well, welcome to the podcast, Joe. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks a lot, Clint and Tony. Really glad that you invited me to be on. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. So our audience would have heard a brief little bio, but I'd love for you to, to just share what got you interested in the topic of faith and religion and science and like what prompted you to write this book. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things. I think I'll, I'll give you the, the, the long biographical explanation first, and then maybe more the more immediate motivation for writing the book. So I was raised Christian, raised evangelical, um, and I also loved science from a really early age. So especially in high school, I took literally, now this is not as extreme as it sounds like because I went to a very small high school, but I took literally every science course that my high school offered. So every single one on the books, I just took every single one. Um, and yeah, I just, I love the sciences. I always thought I wanted to go to college for science until Late, I'd say like junior, senior year of high school, I sort of got awoken to the humanities and there's a whole story in there, but eventually found my way into philosophy and that's what I ended up doing, but never really lost that love of the sciences. And I guess from that point of being really, early, really interested in the sciences in high school, I started thinking about, well, how does this mesh with my faith commitments? And at that point, I read about this in the intro of the book, and it really is one of the things that got me started and down this pathway is I, I was raised young earth creationist. So I believe the earth was 6,000 years old. And I remember in our evolutionary theory class, that's clearly not what was being taught, that the earth was 6,000 years old. And it was really this moment of trying to figure out, do I have to choose here? Can I get these to play nicely? Um, do I have to, you know, can I be a serious Christian and believe in the science or do I have to go over to the science end of things and then leave my faith behind? 
And that really started me down the path that eventually led to this book. Um, and in a way, the book is the result of me thinking about that for it's like 20 years now since high school. So it's been a long time of thinking about those issues. More immediately, one of the reasons that I wanted to write a book about science and religion and faith and the intersection of those things is the very real data that we have about just how many people are in a similar boat to what I was when I was in high school. So I don't have the exact statistics sitting right here in front of me, but it's a big chunk of people who leave Christianity, who leave faith generally. When you just literally point blank ask them, why did you leave? They'll say, because I started believing in science or because I don't believe that I can believe in science and believe in faith at the same time. So I thought, well, you know, I, I, I've, as, as we'll talk about today, I don't hold that view anymore. And I've managed to reconcile the two. But I thought, well, there's a whole bunch of 18-year-old Joes out there who are wrestling with the exact same things I was wrestling with. So that's yeah. what I wrote the book for. My past self, like current self, and all the other, I guess, um, people that are going through similar thought processes. And just to piggyback on that, I think a comment you made in that introduction where you presented those statistics, not only is it that there's a just blood in the water that people are detecting of like these things are at odds with each other, but coupled with the fact that and the average student or person doesn't know a ton about science or religion. Right. Like there were some yeah, shocking yeah. statistics. Like I think one of them was 55% of Americans or maybe American Protestants agreed with the claim Jesus is the first creation from God. Oh yeah. Personally. Yeah. And it's like, oh well, no. Whoa. You know, that's not really tra traditional yeah. Christian teaching. Um, yeah. So you can you can go uh, um wow. uh, Lagonier ministries. I want to say they're um RC Sproul's organization. Yeah. I don't know if that sounds right to you. Yeah, um, so they, is, they just yeah. did this um, survey really recently. I want to say it's 2020, 2021. Um, you can look it up online. Your listeners can look it up online. It's called stateoftheology.com. And it's really nice, pretty data visualization, which I like mm. too. Um, we've all looked at enough clunky data. It's nice when there's sure. a nice picture. And yeah, I mean, it, it is astounding. That one I pulled is just one of them. But it is the, it's the literal statement of the, the Arian, A-R-I-A-N, yeah. not A-R-Y-A-N, different Arian. But yeah. the Arian heresy, right, which is that Jesus was created. Um, and, and they literally just state it that way. And the majority of Christians agree with it. Um, so yeah, there, there is just this, um, there what is does that this, say, what does that say about the, the church? <laughs> I, I'm not sure what R.C. Sproul, who Man. is now deceased, but he'd probably be rolling in his grave at that yeah, one. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I'm sure. I mean, I think most people, mo most, most people who especially care about things like what you guys talk about. But I mean, I think, yeah, it says says that, yeah, there's, there's sort of this big gap in knowing exactly even what one's own faith tradition teaches. So mm -hmm. there's one thing to disagree with the faith tradition and to say, like, let's debate whether, you know, the, the Arians actually got it right back 1700 years ago. But it's a whole other thing to say, no, 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 I think they got it wrong, but I agree with the things that they were wrong about. I mean, that that's sort of this, this big area mm -hmm. of disconnect. And you can do the same thing with the sciences, right? Is that your average person doesn't actually know that much about science either. So, th so that's, I think, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Clint, because that sort of those statistics combined with these statistics about people leaving the church are what really got me thinking, wait, so we've got all these people leaving their faith because they think they can't believe in science and their faith at the same time. But on the other hand, 
We've got all these statistics that suggest people don't know much about what their faith teaches or about what science teaches either. So we've got a recipe where people are making these huge existential choices that are coming from misunderstanding or ignorance and not from a place of genuine knowledge. Yeah, so, okay. So in your opinion, what what for these people is the main pain point where science and faith come into conflict? You know, is there some, is it the young earth thing? Is that the main thing that's causing them to be like, well, I can't reconcile this? Or is there something else that you've seen be the, the main sort of stumbling block? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good, I, I'd be interested to hear what you guys have, because I'm sure you you both have seen this in some form or another too. I think the, the young earth thing is one of them. I think evolution is a big one. Yeah, I yeah. think sort of, for some people, it's just the, the general outlook in a way. I think, you know, if you take a very scientific view of things, and I want to dismantle some of this as we go through the conversation, but sort of when people think, what's the scientific view? Well, we're, we're biological organisms in a giant, vast, uncaring universe. Mm. Um, and Christianity clearly doesn't teach that, um, right? That or at least doesn't teach that that's all that we are. So I think there is sort of just this, this mindset too, where, well, no, if I've got a, a, a fact-based scientific outlook, that's how I've got to see myself. And that's like not the way that Christianity taught me that I was. Um, I don't know, but yeah, I, I'd, I'd want to, I'm interested to hear if you guys, like, are there any particular issues or like ways of thinking that you've seen where people really encounter this, this dissonance between the two? Just an even a finer point on the evolution piece would be like the historical Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I found even, even folks that would endorse largely the evolutionary story, like draw the line in the sand. Okay, fine common descent all that except when then we got to we, eat it. we need two individuals because paul mentions yep. it in romans and there's this there's this whole theological uh structure that might be undermined by rejecting that reading of genesis mm-hmm. two and three um mm-hmm. yeah but no, I, I think that, i agree I think there's like sort that of over- a couple yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I think there are sort of a couple places in evolution and there's the evolution writ large, but then also specifically, what about Adam and Eve? What about specifically human evolution? Mm-hmm. But to your point, like just that broader um, general sense that there's conflict, there's a lot of little touch points here and there throughout scripture, mm-hmm. instances of reported miracles that, yeah, sure. that people would be hesitant coming from the quote unquote, the soon to be dismantled scientific outlook that would say that those there's a different explanation than that um yeah yeah, good yeah Yeah, no i like the point tony that yeah i mean the the resurrection i mean that's you know saint paul talks about the resurrection being the the i forget you you guys might have the exact quote but uh you know that's like the center of christian teaching right and that's a pretty unscientific thing to believe in so that could be a stumbling block too yeah yeah that's hard to Um, swallow if you're a materialist yeah i mean i think too there's sort of a I think there's some can sometimes be an almost an epistemological thing going on where people think, well, if I really want to understand who I am, the best way to do that is by understanding what's going on with me biologically or what's going on in my brain. And there's sort of this assumption that once I've understood the biological explanation, well, then why why would I, you know, sort of get a second rate explanation of who I am when I go to church on Sundays? Right. So I think there's some of that sense too. Mm-hmm. So all right what's the path forward like what do we what do we say to folks that are experiencing that 
disconnect that are sensing that conflict largely i'm just i know it's teeing you up but largely your book is exploring these different models if you will of how to and what i found particularly helpful reading it is your distinction you brought up between how to describe how they relate and maybe how to prescribe how they ought to relate mm. so the, sort of the sense that i can experience science and religion conflicting or i can make the claim that that's how we ought to think about how they always relate let's say is that they're always in conflict mm. and then there's these other models that are speaking to the experience of how we but other times science and religion we experience them as not in conflict mm -hmm. like what does my view of the atonement what jesus's work on the cross was have to do with um atp output and glycolysis in the mitochondria or something mm -hmm. like oh they're talking about different things so i don't know if you if you want to take a few minutes and sketch these different models you talk about um yeah and how that might help folks carve a path forward yeah definitely um so I think I want to start with uh, the descriptive prescriptive distinction that you mentioned, Clint, because it is one that I used a lot in the book and one that's just helpful for, I think, thinking about this issue, but other issues too, which is the idea of a description is saying, here's what's going on. This describes my experience. This is um, sort of what it seems like to me, whereas prescriptive is kind of what it sounds like. It's prescribing something. It's saying, here's how it should be. And I think one thing I've noticed in a lot of scholarship and science and religion, and even certain forms of apologetics, is the jump to prescription, right? Is that you're thinking about this wrong, whoever it is that's sitting in front of me. Here's a better way of thinking about it. Um, I think that a big chunk of that is true, and that's what we're going to get to in just a second. So I think there there is sort of this prescriptive move that's really important. But I think it's really important to validate that maybe that's how I should be thinking, but that sure isn't the way it seems right now, um, right? I mean, sort of. We, we can we can experience something um, in a way differently than maybe what even we can recognize that, you know, yeah, I sure wish I could experience it that way, but that, that's not what it feels like to me. Um, so I think that's one thing is really validating that sometimes, you know, the young earth creationist in the evolution class, the description of what's going on is what I think and have experienced Christianity to be is currently not meshing with what I'm being asked to believe in this class. And I don't see how the two play nicely together. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's maybe the first move is making that distinction and saying, we can, we can have the descriptive moment, but then let's step back and think about, hmm, is that, that what you should be experiencing now? And is there a healthier, more productive way of getting those um, into a different kind of relationship? Um, and Clint, you set me up well to talk about these these models. But do we want to talk any more about the descriptive prescriptive thing, or is that? Well, I think that, that comes up in each of. I think that would come up in each of the okay. models. That, okay. Um, cool. It, it just it gives voice to like this uh, this relationship between science and religion uh, strikes me differently in like case by case bases, um, and that's that's awesome to acknowledge that people experience science and religion that way, mm -hmm. but then. What, yeah, I think we'll get to this a little bit more in the conversation, but how do I make that move from noticing the description to like, okay, now how ought I be thinking about it for future cases that come up rather than just purely wafting around mm -hmm. um, like, well, it just seems to me this way. Like, oh, well, let's think about it. And what's a model that I could deploy mm -hmm. to help me better navigate 
things that arise in the future. Good, good. So yeah, so in the book, I talk about three different models of thinking about the relationship between science and religion or science and a life of faith, um, however you want to put that. And they're not mine. They're due to this scholar, Ian Barber, who's a really influential scholar of science and religion. But they're ones that I expand on and I think talk about a little bit differently than Barber. Um, the first model is the conflict model. And I think the way of thinking about when we think about science and religion in conflict is as thinking about there's this set of questions or issues that are out there. And science and religion are both aiming to answer that set of question or address that set of issues. And if one gets the territory, if one gets the answer first, then the other one loses out unless they happen to agree with each other. Um, so again, this is something like, take the question, how long have humans been around for? There's your question. And that's, this was my experience. And I know the experience of a lot of other folks is, oh, wait, like science is weighing in. My faith tradition, I think, is weighing in on this. And they don't agree. And it sure looks like I can't have both, right? That seems like being intellectually dishonest to say, you know, humans are, hundred some thousand years old and we're 6,000 years old like that. That seems dishonest. So that's where this conflict model, I think, gets deployed. Um, again, the, the idea here is same set of question or issues. Science and religion are both competing to answer those. And it's winner takes all for each one of those issues or questions. There's also a different model, though. Um, this is one that has been described most completely by the scholar Stephen J. Gould, um, who's an interesting figure for a couple of reasons. Number one, he was a scientist. Number two, he was an atheist. But number three, he made these really interesting and in a lot of ways, religiously sympathetic contributions to scholarship in science and religion. So Gould's position was that as a scientist, he just didn't have much to say about religious questions whatsoever. He had religious beliefs. He was an atheist. But he said, that's, that's sort of independent of my scientific beliefs and research is my beliefs about religious questions. So the model that Gould puts forward, I call it the, the independence model, which is to say, it's not like there's one cluster of questions and issues that science and religion are competing to solve or to address, but rather there's like two completely separate sets of questions and issues and one's for science and one's for religion. And there's no conflict between them because they're both kind of out there just doing their own thing. Um, some examples of this, you, you gave a couple, Clint, right, is, you know, your theory of atonement. Um, I'm not going to call up my buddy who's a physicist or a chemist <laughs> and say, could you like go into the lab this weekend and like run some tests? Because I like I'm working out this theory of atonement and I'm not sure if it's, you know, substitutionary or, um, I, you know, some other theory of atonement. Right. And I'd like it. It doesn't really even make any sense. And same thing on the other side is that if you are running some experiment in the lab and you're, you know, what areas of the brain are correlated with fear responses, you're, you're not going to go to Bible study. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So I, I, I don't want to, I, I kind of want to make sure I'm not just monologuing here, but I think there's limitations oh, to both helpful. of those models. Yeah. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to come back eventually and make sure we talk about the limitations because I think actually conflict and independence are both often descriptively accurate. So they do capture part of our experience, but I think prescriptively there's problems with both. So the one that I really appreciate the most is called the dialogue model. And according to the dialogue model is that- The third one in the list is usually 
Usually that's the right that's one. That's the right one. I know. <laughs> you don't know. start off with the right one. No, you gotta gotta yeah. sort of show what's yeah, well, wrong with all the other things before you build up to well the solution finally at the end here. Um so dialogue says there that science and religion, in this way, it's like the conflict model, can weigh in on the same issues or questions. So there, there is one set of issues and questions that both science and religion or a life of faith. Again, we don't need to be, you know, religion sometimes can seem very academic. It can be a, a life of faith too. Um, are both weighing in on this set of issues and questions. So they're not independent from each other. But unlike the conflict model, it's not that they're competing, but rather can be in dialogue with each other. I mean, so think about a conversation like the one we're having. There can be moments of disagreement maybe there can be moments of tension moments of concurrence moments in which one of you guys says something i'm like oh yeah i never thought about it that way um and it's a dialogue the two build on each other um again sometimes it can be a tense that right? maybe we'll get debating later or whatever and so it can be tense it can be um cordial it can be both at the same time and that's a much better way of understanding the relationship both uh the upsides of when science and religion get talking to each other and also the more tense sides I don't know if this is a fair analogy, but I'm going to try it. I know you've seen National Treasure. Yeah. You love that one. I love that. Have too. you seen National Treasure with Nicolas Cage? It's, it's really been a minute, but I, I okay. have definitely seen National so there's Treasure. This, one of the whole shticks of the movie is that they steal the Declaration of Independence. That's awesome. And on the back is a map. One stage, they need to collect the bifocals of Benjamin, Benjamin Franklin. Franklin. Yeah. That's right. And when they... That, kind of jigger the little nozzles on like 3d glasses with the red one of, and the blue yeah one of them's a red tint and they see some of the message if you switch it to blue you see some of the messages but both i get the full map of where the hidden treasure is is Nick it kind Cage of like just that? dropping those truth bombs yeah <laughs> <laughs> is this it, are, is science and religion like the bifocals on the world i mean kind of seriously that each gives you only a partial description of like if there's a book of all truths, science is adept at getting some of those. Religious pursuits are adept at getting others. Combine them, and there's... You Hopefully get... you have a fuller picture of truth. The, is, that, not... is that the dialogue model, or am I, is that yeah. not right? Yeah, I think that is the dialogue model. I think um, as long as you layer on that sometimes... And I, I, I love this, Clint. So that, that is awesome. And I love bringing in National Treasure to... I, I, I did not expect our conversation to go to Nick Cage <laughs> National Treasure, and I'm so happy that it has. Um, I think as long as you sort of layer in a couple of complications where you say sometimes you put down both lenses and maybe maybe there's some... You know, something that actually is a little less clear because of that, right? That, you know, now I'm looking at this and I thought it was that. And if I look at it this way, I thought it was that. But together, it's like maybe a little harder to make out exactly what I'm looking at. Mm, um, yeah. Sort of to accommodate, like, there's these moments of tension in the dialogue. Um, and I also, I think I want to add in that I don't want to say that there's not the green lens too, right? So what that huh. green lens is, I think maybe there's a whole bunch of others. You know, maybe there's certain kinds of aesthetic knowledge that aren't purely ones that are coming from religion that aren't coming from science but that are something else um so yeah no i, th I think it's a really helpful way of thinking about things can you help me understand a little bit so these two in dialogue with each other and i get that sometimes there can be tension it does seem like on some issues it the dialogue does turn into conflict though like like well, let's just take the age of the earth example Science says one thing, religion says another. So, Even if they're in dialogue with each other, 
I can't hold both. So this is a question I wanted to pose to you, Joe, that mm-hmm. um, I was r- struggling with throughout the book is how you put that just there is to su- suggest that religion is like this monolithic thing that like, he- here's what religion says. Right. When in fact, it's like someone came along and gave a religious interpretation mm-hmm. of a text. So it's... Not- Someone came along and gave a young earth account from their reading of Genesis. Mm-hmm. But others have not. Others have read Genesis and not that way. So it's not like yeah. the fault of the the project of religion per se has foisted upon us this bad theory or something. Um not being articulate. Yeah, no, I totally you get what you're both getting at. I guess getting at. Yeah, no, I mean, I see exactly what you're saying. And this is maybe a a point to bring in another point that I wanted to lean into, which is this idea of intellectual humility. Um, and the idea of intellectual humility, it can be talked about in a whole lot of different ways. The way that I want to talk about it here as, as an appreciation of our human limitations mm. and an appreciation that human knowledge and understanding is always distinctively human knowledge and understanding and in that way is limited. Um, I don't use this in the book, but I, I sort of in the back of my head, I think about it as the, the through a glass darkly principle, right? Mm-hmm. So when we do have truths, even when those are pretty solid religious truths, um, right? So something like bedrocked Christianity, like the incarnation or the atonement. I mean, these things are, you know, those are pretty bedrock when it comes to Christianity, at least. Those we understand, uh, you know, I can say I know those things, but I know them in a human way, not in an angelic way, not in the way God would know those truths. I know them in my limited human capacity. Hmm. So I think that what I want to say in answer to both of your questions is that's sort of the gloss I want to give on religious truths and also scientific truths, right? So that again, when, when I'm, you know, here I'm bringing this young earth creationist reading to my junior evolutionary biology class, junior year other evolutionary biology class, and there's this conflict that happens. Um, yeah, I think descriptively what's happening is that's that's conflict. But prescriptively, where I would want to urge you to get to is realizing that in my limited human knowledge, maybe my interpretation here of scripture is off. Maybe it needs refining. Maybe the science here I'm misunderstanding in some way. Um, Again, you know, there's certain scientific truths that I think that something like evolution, there's such a preponderance of evidence for. I think we shouldn't like just lightly say, oh, maybe the science is off here. But I think Mm -hmm. there is this um, move to be able to say, you know, even scientific truths that are pretty well established, we understand them in a human way. And by the time you've kind of layered that intellectual humility on top, I think you're getting something closer to dialogue even though it might be more of a tense dialogue, all of a sudden you've opened yourself up to this possibility of, oh, maybe maybe I need to revisit, reinterpret, rethink through this. Mm-hmm. Um, I should say too, I, so I'm, I'm a Catholic Christian and that gives me a little different relationship than some other traditions in that part of being a Catholic is that I try to be faithful to the magisteria of the Catholic church, right? So there's, you know, we've, when I, when you say, what does a Catholic believe? It's like, we've got a 1500 page catechism. There's like a lot of things we have to believe. And sometimes even the interpretation is pretty much no, like, you know, this is how to interpret that. So yeah. But, but then I would just say 
the intellectual humility starts there, right? So I have maybe more things that count as bedrock foundational to a Catholic Christian belief system, but there's still that intellectual humility of those truths and those interpretations I understand and interpret in a fully human way. Mm -hmm. Have you found over the years, like as you look back to when you're in high school, starting to wrestle with all of this stuff, just when you speak about intellectual humility, it gets me thinking about um, becoming more comfortable with not having certainty on certain issues. Um, issue like situations where science and and faith might be in tension. I'm increasingly more okay with saying I have suspended my judgment on this issue for now. You know, I'm awaiting further evidence or something. Um, I wonder if that's the case for you as well. Like it, you just mentioned a book of fifteen hundred beliefs that you hold so i was going to ask have your core beliefs been pared down over the years uh and have you found yourself more agnostic with certain things but maybe not not if yeah, you've got no it's a, it's a yeah it's a really interesting question and i'm going to do the uh, the frustrating philosopher thing and say yes to both sides of what you just okay asked. okay <laughs> um yeah so i mean i think in, in some ways i have pared down beliefs and i'm much more comfortable with being agnostic about certain things so um especially for me at least if the Catholic Church, if there's not magisterial teaching on an issue, I'm, I'm happy to say, yeah, I, you know, I, I really don't know this. And I'm, even if it's something really important, um, I, I don't know, and I'm fine not knowing until more evidence comes in. And the other way, again, I was, I was raised evangelical and eventually became Catholic and evangelicals don't have a catechism, right? So in that way, I took on a whole lot of extra beliefs that I didn't have in my evangelical it days. I don't want to derail us too much, but I'm very curious about that. You grew up evangelical. Now you are Catholic, a decision you made as an adult, presumably. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Could you, would you give us the elevator pitch for the Catholicism? How, why? Yeah. I mean, I, I could take this a number of different, one of different directions. I think one thing, actually it's, it's relevant to what we're talking about. So I'll take it that direction Yeah. is I think the idea of scripture and tradition became very attractive to me because I think sort of taking on board a certain interpretive tradition and saying, I'm going to take on board this interpretive tradition as equally authoritative to the bind that scripture has on me. Um, I think that was something that was really attractive to me and I think solved a lot of intellectual questions for me too, where I could look and say, you know, here's this really ambiguous passage in scripture and I know what the 19th century Germans said, and I know what the Lutherans said, and I know what, you know, contemporary megachurches say about this, and I know what the Catholic Church says about this. And it was really attractive to me that the, the Catholic Church just says, yep, this is our take, and this is sort of an authoritative take. So part of being Catholic is sort of being very open about saying, no, this is the tradition to which I belong now. Um, mm. there's, there's other reasons too. Humans are complicated, right? And it's not like yeah, that sure. was the thing yeah, sure. that all of a sudden, oh, that's, you know, you, you believe in scripture and tradition. So now I'm joining up with you guys. There was other things that worked too, but, um, I'm that sure. was definitely yeah, one yeah. of the things. Yeah. Great. So, thanks. So kind of bouncing back to the models and a theme that came up quite a bit in the book was, uh, I think you gave, uh, St. Augustine some credit here mm -hmm. of the, all truth is God's truth. Not the first time some of us have heard that one before. Okay. Um, and like it's, I don't know. I don't know if it borders on cliche, but if people have heard that too much. But 
part of that is super helpful. So like that, what you were talking about with human perspective, well, if we elevate it from the divine angelic perspective that have this kind of immediate intellect where there, there's no daylight between wanting to know the truth and having it, right? Science and religion generally understood as pursuing truth, maybe by different means, perhaps, can never be in conflict. And it, like if, if they are successful in their methodology and um, like it has worked out how it's meant to from the science angle, from the religious one, from God's eye view, they can't conflict in the sense that like properly working religion isn't going to produce something that's a truth. When you use that term, that contradicts a scientific truth because there is uh there are no subspecies under the genus truth almost like um yeah. it's just there's one kind yeah i love the, the law of excluded the, middle or something exactly yeah. exactly no i love the way you put that clint because i i it is it is augustine here right the all truth is god's truth line but i think what you were pushing towards at the end there is that there's even this more basic law of excluded middle right so even if you have no theological commitments whatsoever sort of like the way the world is is the way the world is um and if you're a christian you believe that that world is God's world. Those truths are God's truths. But if you're not a Christian, if you're not even a theist, it's still like, well, no, there's there's one way the world is, right? Sort of, and and that, that's the way it is. So what that means is that, um, and this is one reason why I think the conflict model can't be prescriptively the right model, because it says that there's this religious truths and scientific truths in conflict with each other and only one can win out. Mm. And that just can't be right because there is only one truth or there's multiple truths. There's only one, you know, there, there's God's truth. Yeah. And part of what both science and religion are doing, their telos, their purpose is to understand ourselves and the world around us, right? We're, we're aiming at the truth. So we're both aiming at the same thing. Now, granted, that's not all they're doing. Um, I don't want to like diminish like what religious religion is, is like, getting to the truth. That would be a very philosopher's take on what religion is. I mean, there's, yeah. we, we pray, we worship, we, we do all sorts of things that aren't just about getting at the truth, but that's one thing we're doing, right? Is we're trying to understand what are, what we are, what the world around us is like. And that's one of the aims of science. Um, it's not the only thing science does, right? Science also, you know, um, I don't know, it, it, it educates, it tries to model, it tries to got to bring in grant dollars, right? You got to teach your undergraduate class. There's lots of things you do as a scientist too. But one thing you're doing as a scientist is trying to get to truth. I think the helpful analogy here is a geographical one is you guys are, what part of Ohio again? You already told me. Northern Cleveland. near Cleveland. Yeah. Okay. So, right. Like, let's say we both decide we're going to go meet up in Austin. I'm in Chicago right now. We both decide we're meeting up in Austin. Um, if we're going to the same place, our paths have to converge, not conflict with each other. As we're going there, we might be taking different highways at various moments where it's like you guys are heading west and I'm heading east because of the way the, the highway system's laid out. So sort of superficially, it might look like, oh, they're heading in different directions, which in one way is true, but in a deeper way, it's not because we're going to the same place. So that's why I want to say the conflict model can't prescriptively be the right model because even when it seems like they're heading in different directions, science and religion are both heading to the same place, which is truth. So they can't be in conflict. I actually think it also rules out the independence model as prescriptive 
Why? Because I think that the independence model depends on there being these two different domains of truth. It's like, here's the scientific truths. Here's the religious truths. Here's the atonement and all the stuff from the creed and whatever else you want to include in there. And here's, um, you know, the facts about covalence bonding, bonding and neuroanatomy and quantum physics over here. And the two don't have anything to do with each other. But again, I think for sure, if you're a theist and you buy this Augustinian line, all truth is God's truth, that doesn't hold water. But I think even if you're not, it just doesn't make sense to say like, when we get to reality, there's actually these like sort of two, <laughs> two like continents of reality. And there's the scientific realities over here and the religious realities over here. And they're independent. I think it just doesn't quite make sense. Can I, can I offer some pushback? on that I'm just, as we're talking about as we're talking about science and faith i'm just going to throw some stuff out and yeah, maybe it'll stick maybe it won't okay great. it seems to me that science or even talking about science as though it's a thing i mean it's a method right it's a method it's, yeah. it's, a, it's an approach so that aside i don't know that that approach can speak to the domain of value much um, and I wonder if that's something that faith or religion has uniquely. What what should matter to people? Um, what should you orient yourself towards? What should you aim at in life? Uh, what should be most important to you? What should you value? Those now that does seem like an independent domain that science and the method of science isn't really or can't even really speak to. Am I thinking about that clearly? Or oh, absolutely, Tony. Yes. I mean, I think what you're getting at is this thing that sometimes gets called the the fact value distinction or the is yeah. distinction. Um, yeah. So science can tell me about what the world's like, but not about what I ought to do. Um, and how I think to, there is how the so, heavens go, not how to go to heaven. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, Steve, there's another line that's Stephen Jay Gould. He's got another one. Religion tells us about the, the rock of ages and science tells us about the age of rocks. Yeah, uh, that's, that's good. <laughs> yeah. So is that an, ex- is that an example of this independent? Is that an argument in favor of the independent model? Yeah. So here's what I want to say. And we could, man, I mean, we could talk about the is-ought distinction all day and I'm not an expert in it. So, so I'm sure some of your listeners or maybe you guys will tell me why this is washed up. Um, but I feel like I don't totally buy the is-ought distinction. Why? Because as we really start understanding the is of something, I feel like we're often pushed towards the ought as well, right? So if I really understand for instance, human biology, that might tell me something about how I ought to be eating. Um, does it mean that, does it sort of give the full normative weight? I don't think so, because I think you need some sort of ethical religious premise in there too. But I think it starts kind of pushing in that direction. Um, so at least for me, I've always found it difficult even with, and I, I, I think it's a really good objection, Tony, and it might be one that actually, um, I don't know, if you were to push me on maybe maybe the I don't think the whole, the, the position wouldn't crumble, but there might be some cracks in the foundation there. But yeah, I, I just really, the, the is odd thing. I just feel like the more we do understand the world around us and the more we understand ourselves, we just can't totally keep ourselves from starting to have some normative talk come in there too. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll retreat just a little bit. Not retreat as in, I actually believe what I just said. So I'm not retreating from position, but retreat, (laughs) maybe this is an easier to swallow thing, is that I think at the very least, our scientific investigations give us a lot of information for dialogue. 
yeah, and absolutely. the dialogue with ethical and religious and faith truths, right? So as a, you know, again, as a biologist tells me how my body works, as a physicist tells me about how vast the cosmos is, as a, um, I don't know, as a psychologist tells me about different things that we're learning about in mental health, I take it then that's a occasion for religion or ethics to come in and say, ah, we, we have we have new things we need to talk about and in fact need to incorporate to the ways we, you know, for instance, we need to talk about mental health differently now than we did 20 years ago. We need to talk about um, exercise differently now than we did 100 years ago. Um, just things like this, right? Um, do you get from one to the other directly? I don't think so. But I think like sort of the, the, digger you, the, the deeper you dig, the more those two at least come into dialogue and maybe start to have some amount of overlap. But I don't know if you guys want to push back more. I'm, I'm happy to explore this more. I know I'm pretty sure like a Sam Harris figure would uh, endorse what you are saying that he would not find the Izzat distinction entirely compelling. I mean, after all, I think if you are an atheist and still committed to objective moral value, it mm -hmm. needs to come from is somewhere. Yeah, your aughts. And it is a story of the ilk that you're talking about, Joe. I'm not an expert in it either, but maybe like a stab in the dark could be like on that example of eating. So we learn facts about how the human body digests. Um, it doesn't do well with rocks and mm -hmm. it does do well with beef or something yeah, or exactly, whatever. Or, exactly. or celery or to appease everybody. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, isn't uh, celery like a hamburger is going to work oh, out sorry, a whole lot better. You spend more calories eating the celery than you get from eating it. Ah, right? there well, you go. So, so not celery. Maybe this well, is proving the point though, Tony, right? Is that, yeah, we, we learned that dialogue. celery is like negative, negative calories. So <laughs> yeah, if you're, if you're trying to make weight before a wrestling match, it's particularly good. <laughs> and if you're, you're trying to, um, I don't know, get some energy for the day, it might not be that great. Sorry, I derailed. No, no, it's fine. Whatever vegetable is nutritious yeah. in a way that a rock is not. Yeah, um, yeah. So we learn that fact, and you might even say it's a biological fact that a human being would want to be healthy. Like maybe that's baked into the neural chemistry of like you'll by nature desire, desire to survive. <laughs> um, and so ought I be healthy? Is that a purely religious non-scientific yeah question i mean here's, to ask. here's one thing i think mcintyre alistair mcintyre talks about it in these terms you can think about an artifact and understanding the ontology of a table or a hammer or a microphone like just understanding what it is how it works is going to give you thoughts about how to use it right so if i understand what a hammer is i know that i whack nails with the metal end and not the wood end. If I know how a microphone works, I know that I talk in it about distances and not like with my mouth over it and not like 20 feet away, right? So there's sort of these aughts that follow from our understanding of what something is. And I take it that's part of what goes on with our religious understanding of what we are, right? So if I know that I am a child of God, that might give me, give me guidance of how I ought to live. But I think it might also follow for purely scientific understandings of how we, well, you know, of, of who we are. Again, for I, the, the diet example, I think is a, maybe there's better ones, but I think it is a good one. Yeah. I mean, I know that like science can tell me that rocks don't do particularly well with human digestion, so I shouldn't eat them in the same way that if I know what a hammer is, 
like, why would I be whacking nails with the, the wooden end? Like, that's not how it works. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and even that, like, the therefore I shouldn't eat them. There might be, like, an underscored premise of, like... There might be. I, I want to live. Right. But I'm not... Or it's good to live. And is that purely, like, non-scientific? Uh, that, maybe that's just a question. We can table that, maybe, and let the listener decide um yeah it might be and i think um i think at the end of the day even if you don't get this sort of consolidation of all truths into one um at the very least what you get is the need for dialogue which is Mm -hmm. i guess like sort of my penultimate conclusion in the book which is no at least you got to get the two talking to each other and it's going to be much more productive than saying they don't have anything to do with each other or that they're directly at loggerheads Mm -hmm. now let's give um the different devils at play their due Uh, So I can imagine two different types of folks listening. One is like, all right, enough hand-holding kumbaya. Like, science is better, dude. (laughs) Uh, So far, there hasn't been a single, from our conversation, way that religion has been like, actually, no, science, this is the way. And then science has gone in a different direction. Yeah. Overturned there. When does science revise? It seems to always go the other way. That the progress of science, so to speak, uh, has led to overturning of different religious claims. We've already charted some of those. So, and in your book, I'm sorry, I might be taking time from you here, but like in your book and elsewhere, there's this idea of scientism, and that's where science as the, as the method has epistemic or knowledge justification belief privilege. That it enjoys being stronger than other ways of knowing and finding out things. Maybe not like the hard nose, like it's the only way. Well, no, that's too strong. But like, maybe, let's call it the uh, the modest scientismist <laughs> would uh, say, uh, it's just it is better. It's better than the method that religion has for finding out most things about reality. And so, I just want to speak to that person who's wondering like i feel like there's been too much kumbaya and hand-holding like Mm -hmm. aren't let's be serious like science is like way better at getting at truths or or maybe a better another way of putting is it's more reliable at its truth finding capacity good is that i mean no i think that's great there's there's an idea yeah no there's definitely an idea there even i think uh, a really important idea um i think one thing i would want to say is that there's one version of that way of thinking, which does a little bit of what philosophers sometimes call question begging, which is to sort of, you've, you've assumed the conclusion before you've done your investigation. And if what you assume the domain of truth is limited to are truths that scienti- science is particularly good at discovering, right? So you've already sort of said like, the world is purely empirical, it's material, it's, you know, so on and so forth. Um, well, it's mm. going to follow that science is pretty good at discovering that world and way better at discovering that world than religion is or than, you know, a sense of beauty is and things like that. So I think that's one thing I would caution the person who's sort of tempted by that way of thinking is make sure you're not assuming that that's all there is before you go down that path. Because if the assumption's there, that's doing all the intellectual legwork. And the fact that science is good at discovering scientific truths, well, yeah, um, yeah. okay, that's that's true. Um, so I, fair, I would say fair first, response. That was a good response. Yeah, I'm yeah, satisfied so, by that. 
Cool. Cool. Um, <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah. And I would just say, you know, I, I think I, 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 even those of us that are not, as I, I always, this is such a clunky word who are not proponents of scientism can't call them mm. scientismists. Maybe that's, yeah, yeah. That, that'd be kind of nice to you. Um, those of us who are not explicitly proponents of scientism, I don't know, we're 21st century people. We, I think a lot of us think science is like pretty good knowledge, right? Like that is like pretty solid. It gave us like, you know, video calls where we yeah, can do here this. We are. Not, yeah, here we are. It gave us, you know, longer no, lifespan, all these other no things. No amount of searching through the book of Joshua was going to lead to Google Meet. Right, right. Yeah. That's yeah. I suspect. I wonder yeah. if like Dan Brown's got a theory somewhere about right. how it would work out, but yeah. <laughs> Um, if you take the second letter of each verse, it exactly. It just all, Nick Cage, actually, we got to bring Nick Cage back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He could figure you out what that secret is. <laughs> yeah, get the right bifocals. Um, yeah, but I, I think that we're tempted by that way of thinking. But I think just you know to stop and pause and think about the truths of what it's like the first time you read Brothers Karamazov, or the truths of what it's like to, you know, listen to a Beethoven symphony or that's, that's actually, um, my truths are more, I have much more lowbrow taste for me. It would be more like, right. I don't know, blink 182 and like a bad <laughs> sci-fi novel or something like that. But, yeah. you know, you sort of have these aesthetic experiences and it's like pretty clear, like science can tell you what's going on neurologically, but like that's, that's sort of a different kind of truth. Um, and there's religious truths. I mean, again, like we can debate about their truth or falsity, but it's pretty clear that the doctrine of the atonement is um is something that's not going to be totally captured by scientific investigation even though again i want to say that we can put them in dialogue and that sort of thing but yeah that, that's gonna sort of the 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 sphere of truth is bigger than that yeah. and once you've made your sphere of truth bigger i think scientism becomes a lot less tempting mm. now on the flip side of the other the other devil that needs us to do for a moment mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is the fundamentalist and imagine them being the religious version of the scientismists where yeah whenever there is a conflict a tension um the fundamentalist will give deference to the religious claim that beats science must be wrong because my religious claim says this isn't is that the spirit of fundamentalism yeah, and then I... is it does it get fall on the same sword that scientism does in a way i think so yeah and i think that one so i really do see them as two sides of the same coin in a lot of ways mm. um which i don't know i'm guessing they would not like that comparison either side of that coin yeah. um but i do think it's interesting that the arguments that get run on both sides of that equation again so take you know Richard Dawkins on the one hand and Chick Tracks on the other, just as like, these are kind of, you know, cultural touch points. Their arguments look really similar until you get to the conclusions, right? It's, you know, here's what you believe if you're a religious person, here's what the science shows, and therefore, and then they take different directions, right? Therefore, yeah. we've got to like reject the science, therefore, like religion is absurd. One man's modus ponens is another man's, another man's modus, modus ponens. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah, but they're, they're, the major premise is exactly the same, right? Um, so where was I going with this? Oh yeah, no, so the, the the fundamentalist. So I would say that's that's one thing is that I think that what both of those ways of thinking are, are characterized by is to return to this virtue of intellectual humility. I think what's going on 
to a certain extent in both of those ways of thinking. And here's another thing. Um, as I was writing this book, I, I sort of, scientism and fundamentalism are both kind of pejoratives, right? Yeah. No one like, I don't know, on their Facebook profile has... I'm a fundamentalist. On the drop down a on fundamentalist. Yeah, exactly. Or on the flip yeah. side, no one's like, I'm not only a scientist, but I, I'm a big believer in scientism, right? Like that's, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, it's like no one no one actually owns that label. So it's more of like a, a pejorative label, right? Like, you know, you're you're more more religious than I am, so you're a fundamentalist. Or you're like, you give way more to credence to scientists. So science, so you're a sign proponent scientismist, I guess we're rolling yeah, with. Yeah. Um <laughs> But I think what both of those positions share is to a certain degree. Okay, no, I want to back up one more second. So because these are pejoratives, I think that it's more helpful to think about fundamentalist and a scientistic mindset that any of us can fall into, right? So I can kind of have my fundamentalist moments and I can have my moments of scientism. Um, I don't know. You, maybe the label actually applies to some people, but I, I always try and turn these conversations back to ourselves and think when am I falling into fundamentalist styles of thinking? Even if I'm, even if it's not on my Facebook profile that I'm a fundamentalist. And, and same what thing with that, science. What would that look like? Can you give some examples for our listeners yeah. as they sort of introspect and? Yeah. So I think it's precisely when you find yourself falling into a form of intellectual pride, which is the inverse of intellectual humility. It's this sense that not only do I have these beliefs, but I'm holding on to these beliefs with a non-human kind of knowledge, right? Where it's, I am absolutely certain I've got the full picture, the right picture, and I see how my picture relates to other pictures. It's sort of a violation of the through a glass darkly principle. It's where you say, no, 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 the glass, like I found the part of the grass that all the smudges are gone and I see exactly what's going on. And I think that's when we recognize that pattern of thinking. Again, I think it's when you're saying, not just that I believe in young earth creationism, um, I don't know. Like, I, I think that there's reasons not to. We don't need to go into those right now. I think there's sure. interpretive reasons. But I think that that's not necessarily fundamentalism yet. I think fundamentalism is thinking. And when I pick up Genesis, I see it like exactly how an angelic intellect would see it or how how exactly all of God's intentions when he divinely inspired the scripture. Um, yeah. They might not phrase it that way, right? But I, I think that's totally. how... We recognize fundamentalism in ourselves is when we're falling into that. I really get it. And why is that problematic? And why is intellectual humility a virtue? It's because I think it's we're we're failing to be human, right? We're we're failing to be the kinds of creatures that God created us. We're saying, I don't want to be human. I want to be something else. I mean, it's the original sin, right? It's I, I want to be God. I want to have that perspective, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Um, I'm riffing here. Like I, yeah, this is not no, like it's good. big That's theological good. talk. But yeah, so I would say that, and then the flip side is for scientism too, right? It's where the scientist goes from, oh, our best hypothesis right now is this, and this is the way I think I'm interpreting this, and to I'm seeing through a glass clearly instead of darkly, and this is this is the end all be all of our explanations and understanding the way the world works. So we should take heed and be cautious if we think we have it all figured out. I'm wondering too, like. Yeah, to your point about the pejorative label of those, if anyone wouldn't, actual person would want to have those said about themselves. But maybe there's like a slightly more modest version of those where maybe it's on a sliding scale, a spectrum where people just for whatever reason end up assigning a credence level, let's say, like, or they 
their beliefs are they they find that the products of science more are more able to justify their beliefs than the religious ones like let's say if i let's just take a person that when they encounter a scientific claim they're like that um they just gravitate toward that kind of explanation over a religious one there are people on the other side where like when they encounter a religious type of claim that does more work for them than if they were to hear a scientist pontificate on the topic and so maybe when it goes to the a hundred percent credence level of science like that's the scientism fundamentals will be the hundred percent when i hear a religious claim that takes precedence over anything else and so i just wonder if most of us are kind of in the middle somewhere and we tend to prefer one or the other is that what do you think of that idea i i've jotted that down as i was reading as maybe that's what's happening psychologically and leading to certain preferences and feeling of tension yeah i think that's right i mean i think there there is a let me just think about this um yeah i think that I think I think there is a lot to that, Clint. Right? I mean, I think that, especially among 21st century people, we we have this default to put a higher credence in the sciences, um, right? Just it has that like truthy aura about it that we think, oh, this is you know something really solid or really something that we've got evidence or it's falsifiable or whatever. And yeah, there's the. Yeah, and the, the fundamentalist does seem to sort of be trying to reverse that. I guess maybe one thing that's giving me pause is whether whether we want to set it up from the beginning as being an either or, where mm. it's uh, either my credence is 100% in science or 100% in the religious truth, or if it's something like, yeah, I'm trying to think how to map this into like credence talk. Maybe we can talk, maybe let's think through this together, right? So let's say I'm, do we want to take a case of conflict or one where there's sort of this like productive tension? Um, hmm. Let's do the productive tension. I wanted to get this on the table when I was thinking about this conversation. So I read about aliens in the book, which I, yeah. I love talking about aliens. Um, and we have good scientific reason, I'll bore you the details, to think that intelligent extraterrestrial life is not just something for people like me who read sci-fi novels every weekend, but it's actually yeah. like, no, there's, there's good scientific reason for it. Now, what does that do when you start taking that and putting it into dialogue with Christian religious beliefs about the incarnation, about the importance of humans, about being created in the Imago Dei, all that? Oh, you got to retool a lot. Yeah. You got to retool a lot. Yeah, and I think what happens is Again, it's not that I'm saying I put all of my stock into one or the other. It's that, yeah, my credences adjust as the two are in dialogue with each other. So, mm. you know, are humans the the absolute center of God's creation? Well, may, you know, maybe we're one of the centers or something like that. If there's if this is a real possibility that I'm going to take seriously. Um, if you're a fundamentalist in this sense, though, yeah, may, okay, maybe I'm circling back around, Clint, to your view, because maybe maybe the view, like, to be a fundamentalist here is to say, the Bible doesn't mention aliens, right. and I'm just going to say 100% credence, that's the way it is, and just, like, I don't put any stock into the science here. Mm. Um, and maybe the scientismist 
is saying, no, we've got this good evidence. There could be intelligent extraterrestrial life. Um, like my credence in any sort of religious tradition that teaches that there's something special about humans just went way down. Mm-hmm. And I think what I want to advocate for is, yeah, no, I really like this, Clint, now that I'm talking through it. I haven't thought about this in terms of credences, but maybe maybe that is the problem with fundamentalism and scientism is setting the credence levels so high. And what I want to say is, well, no, maybe the Christian, what they should do when they read this science is to say, not, you know, maybe maybe I do need to rethink, like, are humans the only only beings that Christ has to save or the only beings that are one of the center of the universe or, you know, maybe my cosmology needs to be bigger. Um, yeah, and on the flip side, maybe the person who's not religious when they hear about this doesn't have to just say, oh, well, now I can abandon any sort, you know, I, I can kind of don't have to worry about religious people anymore because we just like blew the lid off of that. It's like, well, yeah. no, maybe like, you know, my credence in religion is still small because I'm not religious, but maybe it's, you know, it, it still has to be there because I'm, you know, there's, there's ways that this could be reconciled to. Uh, one other um, topic I wanted to mention from the book was you brought up earlier, Tony, actually, that when you said that, like, well, what is science? It's a method. Mm. Let's get to that. Like, and maybe it's a late in the game to be defining or characterizing no, science great. and religion, but probably should have started with that. But, yeah. um, one book that was super formative for me, you quoted it in there, was Alvin Plantinga's Where the Conflict Really Lies. Mm-hmm. That came out, I think, 2012. Yeah, somewhere and it was right like there. right in the thick of when I was like in seminary and wrestling with some of this stuff. So I found his take pretty helpful. And for the most part, I've just kind of been coasting on his reading of it until reading this. And you've kind of awoken me from my dogmatic slumber a bit. But and correct me if I'm wrong, his um, contribution, perhaps, I don't know if it's totally original with him, but science is that pursuit toward truth where there's been an artificial um, decision that we are going to do methodological naturalism. So let's break that down. Naturalism being um, concerned with the natural world and not the supernatural. So it's looking at larva and rocks and oceans and not angels and devils and god okay so we kind of get without getting too crazy what naturalism is mm-hmm. methodological just means in my pursuit of truth scientia latin to know in my pursuit to know i'm gonna only uh, i'm gonna limit myself to only interacting with manipulating observing natural things and thus of course religion and science are going to conflict because religion is op- is making claims using maybe a broader or at least a different set of um, ontological objects at, at, at their disposal for explaining things and so yeah they're going to there but there that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with either approach i'm super glad kind of to our point earlier about the google meet stuff like methodological naturalism was so helpful for the people putting this together. It's very effective. They weren't wringing their hands wondering like, I wonder how an angel is going to affect me connecting this wire. Get the coals to connect. Yeah. It just wasn't on the table. It, it cleared the field of those concerns. And that's great. And so let science be that that does methodological naturalism. And then you're, I hadn't heard this before, but of course... Of course, it's like the next jump. There's methodological supernaturalism. 
which would be like the domain of religion. And we are going to, you know, restrict our view to how does non-natural entities such as God and spiritual beings and matters help us know about the world. Can you use those two and like relate that to what we've been saying with the dialogue model and how those interplay? Yeah, good. So I, I'm a proponent of both of them. So, and I love Plantinga for, for a number of reasons. I mean, his scholarship is top notch. Any listeners out there, I, I, it sounds like Clint's a big fan too. I don't, have you read any Plantinga before Tony? Yeah, I have. Yeah. 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 So I don't know, but I'm guessing we're all fan. I mean, he's just, he's very clear. He's so good. So reasonable. Um, and, and also there's the, the sociological reason I'm a fan, which is that he was very fun foundational among contemporary philosophers to kind of give contemporary philosophers to talk about religion and Christianity, like in philosophical ways. I mean, obviously people have been talking about Christianity through a philosophical lens for a long time, but he was especially important on the contemporary scene to say, no, I'm going to wear my Christianity on my sleeves and I'm going to talk about the incarnation and these things that like a big chunk of the philosophical community thinks is nuts. And I'm just going to make yeah. arguments and do it really, really well to the point where like people think he's one of the, not only best philosophers of religion, but best epistemologists of the last hundred years. So um, we all owe a lot to Plantinga who are doing philosophy of religion today. Most of my gamer tags for the different online gaming, <laughs> I, I, I use nice. Plantinga. Nice. In yeah, hopes that someone will if, at one point say, oh, I know Alvin. If you ever see Plantinga playing online, playing WoW, it's Clint, you know. <laughs> okay, okay. It's, it's not actually Plantinga. We're just no, kind no, of a bummer. Believe it or not. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so, so I think what I want to going by Bill Craig a whole lot too. You went by Bill Craig. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. I gotta I gotta think of my handle now too. Yeah. Um yeah. If you guys think of anything, send it my way and that'll okay. that'll be my new All right, we'll do. my new gaming handle. Um yeah, so I mean I think what I want to say is so and yeah, I mean you you rehearse the positions exactly how I want to describe them, Clint. His methodological naturalism is a naturalism, but it's a methodological one, right? So we're only talking about natural causes, but it's purely when it comes to how science is supposed to work. So one way of thinking about it is saying, if you're a Christian who believes, let's say you're a Christian who's also an oncologist, right? You work with cancer patients mm -hmm. and you're my patient. And I totally believe that you were just cured miraculously. I can't go and publish a scientific paper that talks about the miraculous cure that just happened because it's not according if you're a methodological naturalist. And again, it is a controversial position among both the, the controversy doesn't divide up neatly among like theists and non-theists, like mm. both and like can, can it disagree with or agree with this position. Um, but I am a methodological naturalist. I think that's not doing science. Um, that's, that's, that's appealing to a supernatural entity, which is not a scientific explanation for what just happened. Again, even if that is what happened, let's just stipulate it was a miraculous cure. You're yeah. a Christian. You believe it was a miraculous cure. You're a scientist. You know how science works. Tough luck. Can't publish a scientific paper on the miraculous cure because that wouldn't be science. You could publish a theology, the, theology paper on it. Methodological supernaturalism um, is the inverse, which I think I've coined it. So I, don't, I'm, I, I hope nice. no one else has scooped me on it. Um, and when you say inverse, do you mean you are only looking for supernatural explanations and excluding any naturalistic exactly, explanations? Exactly. So here's, um, here's an example. Let's say you're in a prayer group with a neuroscientist 
and you're trying to relate your prayer experiences, right? You're saying, you know, this is what this is what I was going on in my prayer as I was praying through, I don't know, this one chapter in one of the gospels, right? This is what came to me. And the neuroscientist says, ah, sounds like some prefrontal cortex activation to me. Um, say, well, yeah, well, okay, okay, it was, but can, can we, and then, ah, and I bet some of this was going on and I bet you got proper sleep. And you're saying, yes, 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 yes. All those things are true. But I want to talk about the experience of prayer, not about all the causes that I don't disagree. Those were causes of the experience I had. But I want to screen those out because the methodology of a prayer meeting, and let's say this was maybe more rigorous prayer meeting or something, right, is to... I haven't been to one of those in a while with a neuroscientist pressing me. I wish I was. This is pretty hypothetical. Yeah, this would be a bizarre... (laughs) I don't know. When when you work in the academy, weirder things happen, right? Um, yeah, but, um, yeah, what you want to say is, um, those might be causes, but in this context, we want to screen those out because we really want to study the supernatural part of the experience right now. Um, and, and not worry about what kind of naturalistic causes there may have been for that supernatural experience. Um, here's how this relates to what we were talking about. I think that the conflict model wants to pit those things against each other and say there's got to be one or another kind of it's either got to be the supernatural thing or the naturalistic thing but this is where i want to really lean into the methodological part so i think there is a certain space in religious spaces where we don't have to talk about the science behind um you know i don't there's a whole there's some great stuff out there there's like there's good scientific research about like posture and how that you know can relate to supernatural experience there's a ton of literature about meditation right now and about how it's like well yeah that's great but there's a space to like actually go and pray too um and on the flip side there's a space for the scientists to just be in the lab and not be looking for miracles all the time Mm -hmm. what Mm -hmm. the dialogue model i think pushes us to do and this is a different way of push it putting it is to think about our experience our knowledge and our quest for truth not being in just those two domains, but being a, a fully human endeavor where we try and bring those methodologies together and think about how, again, I mean, we could take something like the experience of prayer where I'm a methodological naturalist for a while and I just go and study what happens when people pray. And I get a really cool story that again, there's a huge literature out there right now about all the sorts of things that happens when people pray. I think the the fundamentalist or scientistic reading of that is sometimes Oh, and therefore that's all there is to prayer, right? right. Um, from both ends, oh, right? Good. So the scientism proponent of scientism says we we solve prayer, right? That's that's why you get down on your knees and pray sometimes. And the fundamentalist is like, that's that's just baloney. Why are you even studying that? Like, you know, you're trying to like limit my prayer to just just what's then, going on. And I don't know if that that kind of claim would ever be in like the conclusion of a scholarly paper, maybe. But at that moment, I think you and I would agree. And again, it's controversial, but. Like they've stopped doing science. Exactly. You have made a philosophical or religious claim about uh, like evaluating the conclusion rather than just here's what happened when we studied people who prayed. Uh, now don't say anything else because that would be to go to ontological or metaphysical naturalism rather than just the method. Because exactly. to say that's all there is to prayer, whoopsies, now you've not done science. You've made a philosophical claim and that that has its own uh, evidential burden that you have not shown in your paper. Exactly, exactly. And that's where I want to push, again, this is maybe another way of talking about the dialogue model, 
is I want to push people to think for the for the non-religious person, maybe the one tempted by scientism, is don't stop there, right? Think about what else there might be to prayer. And to somebody who already is is involved in prayer life is don't be scared of looking to the science and thinking about, oh, you know, I'm going to make some stuff up right now. But let's say yeah, yeah. kneeling in prayer, there's certain benefits to that. Well, learn from that, right? I mean, that shouldn't be something that you're like, oh no, they've like, you know, figured out like what prayer is. And like now, now it, it's like, no, like now we know a little bit more about how human psychology works. And why wouldn't you then take that and put that in dialogue with your practice and say, I'm going to kneel during prayer now sometimes. Um, mm -hmm. Again, I don't know if kneeling is one of the things, but there's, but, you, get, sure. you, get the, you get the gist here. Yeah. I mean, that, may, t uh, correct this if this isn't right, but what I, what I like about those two coming together, the methodological piece, is it, I feel like it acknowledges the lived experience of the three models. Um, we experience conflict because maybe like what they say as a result of those things, like um, the oncologist situation mm -hmm. where like uh, perhaps they describe what happens and it's like, well, we have our scientific best scientific knowledge does not explain what occurred. And then the religious one says, well, we actually do know what occurred. It was a mere. So here's like this tension. Here's a apparent conflict or a superficial one, maybe. Mm -hmm. But once you recognize that, those positions were arrived at by intentional, uh, you know, limitations on those different pursuits. Oh, that's fine. Like I could be a supernaturalist and endorse the methodological naturalist um, description in, in virtue of that's how mm -hmm. they arrived at it. Mm -hmm. um, and the independence one or model, what it gives voice to that and that, well, they, they often will speak to the same sets of questions but here they're doing it in different ways, namely by these two methods. Um, and that's the sense in which they are doing different things. I don't know. Yeah. Is that, is that yeah, right? Or? No, absolutely. I mean, I'm, maybe that's uh, where I would want your listeners to get through in our conversation today. And I think part of the purpose of the book is to have both, I think what you're describing, Clint, is sort of the descriptive and prescriptive tools, right? To be able to, the descriptive project is simply to put your finger on it. Like, right? Like, science and faith seem both to be saying something right now. And like, you know, how do I describe what's going on? And sometimes say, no, what's, what's happening is there's this conflict and I can identify the conflict or no, like I'm, I'm sort of the, the two don't seem to have much to do with each other right now. Or now it seems like, oh, there's sort of talking to each other in some way. Um, so there's the descriptive project, but then I think there's also the, the prescriptive part is be able to name your experiences, be able to name what's going on, um, sort of, how you're how you're thinking about something, how you're reacting to it, but then also giving you some prescriptive tools for where to take it from there. To think about, okay, I'm I'm experiencing this conflict, but I I believe all truth is God's truth, or even if not that, I believe truth is unified. There's no contradictions in truth. That can't be quite right. So prescriptively, I need to move past what I'm descriptively experiencing right now. Mm -hmm. That's great, man. Any cool. kind of closing thoughts for our audience? That... I feel like we should probably tell our audience what the book is called. Ah, uh, yes. I don't know if we've done that. I mean, I guess we will in the intro when we record. Yeah, that. that's... That, okay, yeah. they'll hear it in the intro. So I was just and realizing. if you haven't noticed, it's in between it's us. It's been sitting there, navigating right. faith I've and got science. It, got it on my mind, too. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. It it's this funny thing of, you know, you write this thing like a year ago and then it's like, oh, I, I hope I remember everything that was, what was in here. So, <laughs> right, yeah. Um, nice. yeah. So I have my copy here just in case there was anything that came up. Yeah. No, I don't think so. I mean, I think, um, I just like yeah, you what you, find... how you ended it there. It sounded pretty good. So, okay. The, the path forward. Cool. Yeah. yeah. No, sounds good. Um, yeah, no, if you want to check out anything, it's, um, I've got a website, it's just my name, josephbukov.com and cool. yeah, the book. So yeah, thanks a ton you guys for, for having me on. And this was a, a blast talking through things. And I like too, that it was, a you know, really got to think through some of these things from perspectives I had before, which is as a philosopher, what, what we, what we live for, right. Is just thinking through things and exploring things and turning them over and looking at them in new directions. So I really appreciate the conversation. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for your time. Appreciate that you that you came on. And thank you for listening, for watching. If you uh, have questions, comments, concerns, you want to chime into the conversation, you can do that. You can reach us, uh, visit our website, opentotruth.com. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> yeah, write to us and we'll do a mailbag episode. We'd love to respond to your questions. Um, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching and stay curious.